Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 1008 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian told me that if you haven't yet picked up our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available on Amazon in print and Kindle, he thinks you're very wicked, and not in a good way. To become Wicked in a good way, you can grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark tale by an author new to our show, but definitely not new to horror, we're honored to present Bram Stoker Award winner Sarah Tantlinger, who wrote this story just for the Wicked Library, code word Hatefulness. Today's storyteller is none other than Nelson W. Piles, accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer, Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Sarah's work and buy it. It keeps her making more. You can learn more about Sarah and find links to her work on her bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear. Filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. (laughs) A twisted pile of newspaper tied to my doorknob waits for me when I arrive home from a semi-successful day of selling art to a magazine downtown. Black marker smears the margins with Mick's signature crooked smiley face. I grab the gift and shove my way inside, locking the old door behind me. The bright streets of New York's nightlife fade as I enter the darkness of my tiny apartment below Shannon's flower shop. The sweet girl would visit me when her husband was away doing whatever men in suits did. 
but the jackass was back, and I was in for a lonely night. Mick must have gotten tired of my ramblings of love about her and left a loot as a peace offering for me to shut the hell up. Though he owed me for other things this month, too, I sigh and tear into the newspaper. The plastic baggie reveals itself, hiding one single colorful item inside. A note from Mick is tacked onto the baggie. Hey Bradley found something new, it reads. You've never had anything like this before. Careful. And quit your whining about that chick. I dump the content onto my lap and examine Mick's piece of something new. It's small, button-sized, almost like acid but rough like a sugar cube, a light pink color with blue flecks, sparkles around its edges. The hell is this? I've never seen anything quite like it before. The button contains no odor when I give it a good inhale, but it tempts me. Something about it sends a tantalizing shiver through my body, enticing my tongue forward to let it rest on my taste buds and see what happens. Why not? It couldn't hurt to unwind. Mick had never steered me wrong before. Well, maybe that's a lie. A sigh escapes me once more and I place the mysterious offer on the dusty glass coffee table that stands between the couch and the TV. The couch was my Aunt Carol's. She eagerly thrust it off to me when I moved to the city. Fibers and threads hang loosely from the beige fabric, marks of where her cats used the cushions as scratching posts. Cars zip past in the street despite the late hour, rattling the cheap glass of the windows in my underground solace. I desperately wish Shannon was upstairs, wearing that yellow sundress and fussing over flowers. She often let me come up and paint her arrangements. She'd organized an exquisite bouquet, flori I could never remember the names of, and placed them in a vase that matched the season. This summer, her vases were all bright yellows and sky blues. Sometimes the flowers I paint end up beautiful, clear matches to the inspiration Shannon provides. Other times, if whatever Mick had given me beforehand didn't set well in my brain, the paintings terrified me. Wilted flowers with bloody stems would greet me when I sobered up. Shannon would shove the canvas down the stairs and kick me out. She never wanted darkness or nightmares, and she refused to understand why sometimes I needed to take something to escape reality. A, a place where my own nightmares follow me daily. I think about endings a lot. Too often, according to Shannon. How I will end. Perhaps found dead in an alley from a deal gone wrong, or out on the street because painting and photography only pay so much. How Shannon will end, like her beautiful bouquets dried up and shedding the layers of her skin. When I tell her these things, I like to spin a story of how her end will be cosmic, something barely conceived by the rest of us. She will escape her skin, and her atoms will burst into millions of tiny flower petals. She'll smile, kind of liking the idea, kind of hating me for it, because her suit man will never look into her eyes and find emerald blossoms the way I do. But when I tell her of the world's ending, the smile always fades. The ending can only be destructive and horrifying, be beyond what my imagination is capable of, whether sober or soaring through a different plane of existence. 
The horrors of my father's war stories continue to haunt me in ways I've never been able to describe to Shannon. I was four when he left to fight in World War II, and when that man came back, he was a gaunt shell of himself, at least according to my mother. I was too young to remember the way he was before, outside of her stories, but the way he remained was eternally carved into my brain with the painful etchings of his bursts of anger, his endless sleepwalking and insomnia until the night he set the house on fire and let himself burn while my mother and I watched from the street with our golden retriever. The hatefulness that man carried with him every single day as I grew up until the moment his skin melted in the fire. The boy doesn't forget that darkness been hiding from it ever since. The artwork, the paintings, they have become my therapy and my way to earn money. Well, sometimes there's money. I carry visions within me that are occasionally appreciated. It's how I've come to think of this career. The photography pays more when I grab some gigs for the places on Madison Avenue that hire now and then, but never fulfills me the way painting does. I need the freedom to command colors, to bend brushstrokes on the canvas until they reflect what's happening inside my mind. Sometimes the drugs help create something spectacularly bizarre, and sometimes they create nonsense. But the end result is an experience entirely my own. I shake my head as if trying to rattle loose the darkness that has slowly crept inside. The pink button for Mick stares up at me, asking a question that my tongue salivates an answer to. I pick it up, pretend it's cotton candy, and place the whole thing on my tongue while it softens in chunks, like hard sugar. While it dissolves, I turn the TV on and let some background noise filter in. Five minutes later, the paranoia comes. A sticky sweetness weaves cobwebs in my skull, daring me to remain alert, just aware enough that I can discern reality from hallucination, but that's not always easy. Black spiders come to crawl across those webs, and I can feel them scurrying across my brain, navigating their way to pour out of my nostrils and ears, and then my mouth. Small hairy legs rub against the roof of my mouth until I'm gagging and leaning over the couch, spitting up nothing because nothing is there. Shit. How long will this go on? I should call Mick, but instead I don't move. My eyes close and the TV sings some theme song. I don't remember turning the tube on, but I crack one eye open to see a hot cartoon witch zipping around the screen. I wish Mick had just left Coke. I missed the way that snowy storm blizzarded into my brain, turning me into a jet, an electric bolt of lightning sparking through my art and music, compiling ideas to paint from the comfort of my apartment. Shannon should be here, bright and bored, daisies in her hair as she slipped off her dress and danced to something slow on the record player. But she chose the man in the suit, and I chose darkness and delusion. My heartbeat picks up, and some part of my brain tries to remember why I feel this way, or why any of it matters. 
Mick likes to say, don't let the illusions get you down, but the haze and the feel of the spiders racing across my body are strong counter-arguments. Whatever he gave me, it keeps whispering like it's trying to talk to me directly. I shake my head and focus on the tube. Elizabeth Montgomery twitches her little nose from the screen and I lean in closer wishing she'd tell me the secrets to her magic. This witch in the middle-class suburbs, what's she doing there anyway? What's the point of having magical powers and then giving it up for a life of boring domesticity? I laugh and clap at the TV. Come twitch that nose over here, little bunny. Suddenly, she reminds me too much of Shannon, a gorgeous girl with the whole world out there. And she chooses a man in the suit. A fool who wants to tame a crook who cannot be trusted. All they do is take away from people like me. People living underground, selling art, prowling the streets for something to get buzzed long enough to work. To live. That hunger and drive, they'll... They'll never have it. Never understand it. The screen flickers and waves. The, the TV set is old, donated by my grandma before she pieced out from this forsaken planet to better wildflower pastures. She was my father's mom, but she took me and my mother and baked us cookies every Sunday and then made us pray for my father's soul until our mouths went boneyard dry from talking to God so much. After the screen flickers, the sound fades in and out. Sometimes it works perfectly, but often it glitches, replacing moments of dialogue with static. I watch Darren and Samantha argue and try to fill in the blanks where the static overtakes their voices. Sam had just asked her husband if he thought she was a liar. Darren opens his mouth and I say, Yes, I am. Samantha blinks. Because I'm an idiot with a huge ego, I explain in place of the suit man. Their mouths continue to move, but I hear nothing. And then I laugh at nothing. The dimly lit apartment echoes my laughter back and a quick burst of euphoria sends me to the floor. The magical button of whatever Mick gave me torments my brain between pleasure and paranoia. My fingers grip tightly to the shag carpeting when I realize I'm no longer laying on the floor, but crawling across it like a dog, howling at the TV set and barking for the sound to come back. I yearn to hear Samantha's voice and have her tell me a secret. Show me something to paint. Something that will make them all pay. The picture fades this time along with the static. The television beeps and clicks like a strange insect. Dark blue fills up the screen with EBS stamped across the center in neon orange tones. Below the orange is white lettering that states, We interrupt our program at the request of the White House. I stop crawling and plant myself directly in front of the TV. Blue and orange spin together until I feel like I've stuck my head inside a washing machine. My neck is unscrewed and my head cycles round and round the suds. Suds, I say aloud with a giggle. Laughter bubbles from my throat and for a second, 
I feel the hairy legs of the spiders racing around my tongue and teeth. A low voice cuts through the fuzz, though the images still wave like a psychedelic sea. This station has interrupted its regular programming at the request of the United States government to participate in the emergency broadcast system. The voice said, a familiar voice. Where have I heard it before? Maybe the local radio. This station will remain on the air and serve the New York City area. I scuttle closer to the tube and place my ear against the cold screen, hoping to absorb the information and store it in my brain's web. Maybe the spiders will harvest it, grow the data like seeds, until I understand What's happening? I yell at the talking man inside the screen. Put the witch back on! The man inside the TV responds, We are awaiting further information. I crawl away from the set and toward the couch, rediscovering the newspaper Mick had hidden the goods in. Well, one good. He should have given me more. What was this one little drop really doing? I grab the newspaper and shred it into a violent mess, rearranging the pieces into a ratty mess on the floor. The black and white scraps demand that I roll around in the tattered paper, but first I strip my clothes off. My naked body rolls against the newspaper like a dog with an opossum. Sweat sticks to my flesh and newspaper clings to the sweat. Ink smears off the paper and onto my skin. I glance down at my belly and squint at the words imprinted there, trying to decipher their secret message when the television warning beeps again. The broadcaster is back, his voice grim, but alert. The special message, the code is verified. This is an emergency action directed by the network and by the president. The president? I huff, like that idiot knows anything. Nixon will have the economy pulverized to dust. I could crawl my naked body to the lawn of the White House and beg for a penny, for a strip of bacon for him to stop and look around at we who struggle and he'd take his nasty self down to his fancy parties, his rich friends, and they'd all laugh at us. And they act like they don't understand why we look for something to alternate this painful reality. Yet every fiber of my being is certain that the things you'd find at rich people parties would be enough to coke up an elephant. That was fucking deep, I tell myself, and then roll around on the newspaper some more. Maybe I should write instead of paint. Somewhere between my next round of laughing, the screen wavers again like an ocean. New letters stare back at me from the deep blue background. The letters from my body have left my skin and found their way into the television screen. I know nothing to cause this, the announcer says. Me neither. I ask him to explain more, to tell me some good news. The tube glitches into a kaleidoscopic illusion for a few more seconds. The announcer repeats, I know of nothing to cause this. Over and over. Of nothing, of nothing, of nothing. Becomes a horrifying loop, unstopping until my eyelids twitch. Scraps of newspaper fall from my body when I stand up. I smack the television hard and the reverberation jolts through my nervous system. I swear my atoms have come alive to talk to me. 
My cells dance across the electricity in my body and I enter an ethereal plane so gloriously sweet that I fall to my knees and pray a thank you to Mick for delivering me whatever the hell was in that pink button. Blessed be Mick, I chant and open my arms up to the sky. The screen shudders and a word darts by too quickly for me to see, but an icy tendril wraps vine-like around my spine. My heart speeds up and I am delivered down from my heaven back to earth. The announcer's voice returns and I wonder if this is a kind of purgatory. We have received this official emergency action notification with the proper identification indicating a national emergency. What? I say to the TV, but it doesn't answer. Panic settles immediately into my bones, replacing all the happy little dances where my nerves had been, sending them to scatter like frightened ants when a man in a suit comes to stomp on their dirt mountain. How quick and easy it is to destroy what others took so long to build. Silence. I don't know what's happening in the world, or to the world, and I think about calling Mick or Shannon, but the static returns, and so does the announcer in between spurts of lost sound. Sent by the Air Force. The sky. Oh, God, the sky. I always knew they'd come for me through the sky, those little green dudes and flying saucers. The real, man. The real, and they are here. Dread sits heavy on my chest, bringing with it a breath-stealing anxiety that crushes me to my knees. Rugburn scrapes across my skin, turning pale flesh instantly raw and red. Letters shoot across the screen again, letters that have leapt from my body into a new home. What did the announcer say about a code word before? Ask the witch, I scream into the air. Make her twitch your nose and fix the world. Frantic, I force in a deep breath and drag my body back to the nest of newspaper. The words aren't there. They aren't spread across my belly or thighs either. Gone. The spiders return, and I vomit them out onto the glass coffee table. Fear overtakes rationale, and I grab the rusty metal umbrella stand in the hallway. Wielding it like a sword, I bring the stand down onto the table. Glass cracks, then sprays everywhere like pieces of hail. Chunks crunch beneath my bare feet, sending small slivers of delicious paint to ribbon across my soles. I fall back away from the mess and laugh. The pain should be worse with that much visible blood, but instead it sends giddy appreciation through me. Standing up, I spin around the destroyed table like a dandelion that's been blown on, sending my fuzzy white floaties to spread across the living room. I dance to the sound of static and paint the carpet in blood with my toes. More words on the television screen steal my attention, stopping my dance. The sudden burst of energy leaves my skeleton to fall down exhausted, and I stare at the TV, waiting further instruction. Most of the glass fell away from my toes, and I missed the presence of its delicate crunching. Static and wavering images at first... And then there, I see it. H-A. I blink and look again. The letters are still there, stamped into the left side of the screen. H-A. Huh? Aren't they laughing at me? Come on, man, it's not funny, I protest. 
The announcer doesn't reply, nor does anyone else. I scan the ceiling as if searching for clouds on a sunny day and shake my fist at the aliens who must surely be watching my torment. They've planted this whole thing in my head, and maybe they're in cahoots with the spiders that live inside me. Well, except for the ones I vomited. Not funny, not funny, not funny. I sound like a petulant child even to my own ears. My brain laughs at me, daring me to continue. Stop laughing. The TV says. My eyes dry out from remaining wide open as I stare at the ugly brown set. The rabbit ears on top are wrapped in foil because Shannon had insisted. She claimed it made the connection stronger, but now I wonder if it's too strong. So strong that I've entered through to another world, and now its beings are trying to communicate with me. I find my voice, but it sounds weak and small, even to my own ears. Are you going to kill me? I ask the tinfoil. Are you going to wipe out the planet? Static answers. And then I hear it again. No more laughing. The voice demands. Cut out your tongue. What? No. I may only be a painter, but even I knew cutting out my tongue would have me bleeding to death on the floor. Cut out your tongue. The voice insists. No way, dude. I hit the off switch and crawl away from the TV. Glass smashes between my knees and palms, embedding little shards deep into my skin. I hold up a palm and examine its glittering crystals and dewdrops of blood. Part of me aches to scream, but I feel numb. Silence comes next. I wish Mick had just dropped off some acid instead of whatever is still currently swirling through my system. LSD-filled silences in colorful ways. I'd always try to paint and sing to do something creative to capture the images cycling in my brain. Whatever this was, this new thing, right now it just made me painfully aware of the noiseless atmosphere. Even New York outside my door continues on eerily quiet through the night. Panic sweeps through me, molten in its insistence that something is wrong. I bolt to the door, unlock its rickety hinge, and run up the cement steps to the city streets. Nothing. No cars, no headlights in the distance. Nightlife is gone and replaced by bleak stillness. Maybe everyone stayed inside. Maybe they're listening to the announcer and the code word and the word from the president and, oh God, is it war again? Am I going to war like my father? I leave the chilly, muted night behind and dash inside, slamming the door shut behind me. Before I even realize what I'm doing, I've run over to the rotary phone, an ugly yellow blob against the orange paint of this place. Next to the phone, on the floor, rests one of my paintings. I'm in a staring contest with it as I frantically dial Shannon's number. I have to know if she's okay. The painting was one I completed shortly after moving here. A forest green background, the kind of green the foliage seems to look after a lightning storm, and giant yellow eyes that take up the whole canvas. The irises swirl in circular patterns, as if trying to hypnotize the viewer. Spiky teeth are barely visible on the bottom of the painting, just peeking out enough before disappearing off the page to let you know how sharp that bite would be if it were to come to life. Come on, Shannon, pick up, I whispered to the painting to the broken glass, to anything that might listen in this silent, 
new world. Eventually, she does pick up. It's me, I say. She shushes me and doesn't want to talk. Her voice is a distant siren song in the fog of my mind, a treasure slightly out of reach that I am searching to find, to capture inside a glass jar. I envision such a jar holding that voice, her sweet melody like a songbird. I want to ask her about the broadcast, but my mind races in too many different directions. If it tells you to cut out your tongue, I say, don't do it. How can you sing with all your flower power if your tongue is gone? My words get more frantic as I talk and rush them out. I can't get the image of her voice trapped in glass, surrounded by fireflies out of my mind. How do you paint a voice? I say goodbye and hang up. After some rummaging under my bed, I find a small blank canvas. It's all I have left, so it will have to do. Whatever happens, I need to paint it perfectly. What if this is the last thing I get to paint before the world ends? I have been thinking of endings, and now endings are here. My brain calms to a thoughtful simmer as I work, smearing light blues and yellows and pinks onto the canvas. I'm covered in paint when the TV clicks again, and I turn to face it. The psychedelic ocean is back. Its blues and oranges too harsh compared to mine. Yet I still stare and find myself walking toward the static ticking. A commercial replaces the EBS screen. The sound still isn't working, so I silently watch a group of dancing people in puppet costumes with terrifyingly fake faces parade around the streets of somewhere. Before I can make any sense of it, the letters flash across the screen and slice the puppet people in half. H-A. Ha. You're all dead. Ha. Before the commercial finishes, the EBS screen comes back, and I wonder again if war is coming. Did Nixon push the wrong button and send us into oblivion? My heart drops in my chest the way it did less than ten years ago in 63 when Kennedy died. I was sitting with my mom and grandma just a few short weeks before her own death when it all happened. We'd been watching together when we saw the president's murderer shot live on television, too. I remember the sharp scream of my ma over and over, her utter disbelief at the cruelness of the world, as if she'd entirely forgotten about the cruelness of my father those last few years before he burned. She cried over Kennedy until she could have built a moat around the house. She was convinced that the war would take me, that the draft I had already dodged for a war I protested against would demand all its young men now, that the president was dead. But now, well, now, I think the one true end has found us anyway. Maybe I should call Ma next. She remarried and was living her best life. I'm not even entirely sure which state she might be in now. More static interrupts my thoughts. The letters on the television change to T-E-F. Click, click, U-L. I sound the letters out like a child learning a new word, but I know this word. I heard it many times growing up. I had heard it thrown at my friends, people different than the rest of the suits on Madison. Hateful. 
My television spells out. I wonder why. And as if in response, the broadcaster sounds through the ticking just barely. The correct code word. The static overtakes his voice, more ticking. This is the word sent from Cheyenne Mountain? The official code to send us all into panic and oblivion? N-E-S-S flashes across the screen next. I examine my body again just to make sure the letters really have left my skin and I find nothing. I am an almost blank canvas painted only in blood in the light blues I was using for Shannon's new picture. I place my hand against the screen and feel nothing. Silence and cold surround me, inviting new terror to linger inside my throat. Fear presses against my teeth like invisible ice cubes, but the sting, its sting, is real. I no longer feel the scurrying of the spiders in my brain, and I wonder if they've all died from fright, too. Maybe they knew it was time to leave before I did. Hatefulness. What kind of code word of all words was that? It seems... So deliberate, so intentionally laid out to be something dark and deceptive. I have spent the last 15 years of my life watching a world of hate bloom. Watching people protest against hate. Feeling the brutal stings of a vicious man who was a product of war so terrible. My mother and I would never truly know what turned him into that monster. So what does it mean when the television screen is spelling out such a word for me bluntly in my face? I strain to catch my breath as I pace around the kitchen, eyeing the yellow phone again. I want to call Shannon back, but he's there. Her suit man spreading his hatefulness, and I can't stand the thought of her bright eyes and floral dresses and the daisies she wears in her hair being painted muddy black by the darkness in that man. I walk over to the phone and reach for the handle, my brain trying to think, but there's a a hazy pink fog between what I want to do and what my body is actually doing. Hatefulness. The word tastes like spoiled eggs in my mouth, the revolting gunk of it curdling against my molars, making it hard for me not to puke. As I dial, the television speaks. Please, please do not call us to ask what is the matter. We are endeavoring to find out ourselves. The broadcaster says his words echo around my living room. They don't know what's happening. No one knows. Proper identification code. Yes, I heard it. Hatefulness. The thing I have refused to carry for so long. The thing that makes good people slaughter others on the street in midday. The thing that turns families into ruins. The thing that drives men to seek power over the world. Yet all it does is leave the stain of massacre. And no one can wipe out that much blood. No one can forgive that. A painting I finished days ago rests straight across from me in the kitchen, propped up against boxes of half-eaten cereal. Vibrant colors on the canvas bleed together to form Shannon's face through acid-fueled glasses, the kind of lens I wore when I painted her last. 
She loved the painting so much she cried. Suitman would never paint her. He would never even try. There was no imagination to that man. I frantically finish, rotating numbers on the phone. I'm thinking of Shannon, but I know I should leave her alone. She made her choices, after all. She didn't like my drugs, but she loved the art. She didn't like Suitman's pompous attitude, among many other things about him, but she stayed. She liked security. What did security ever really get you in the end if there was no love? I'm waiting for Mick to answer his phone, and the television starts to spit out static curses again. The broadcaster's voice morphs into a horrifying deep groan. I, I, I can't make out any intelligible words until it repeats, Emergency broadcast system, emergency broadcast system, over and over. Mick finally answers. Do you hear it? I scream at him. Holy shit, do you hear it? My voice rises in pitch as I compete to talk over the looping warning in the background. It fades and then turns to a whisper. Mick, man, did you hear it? What does it mean? Are you watching the emergency broadcast? It's probably on the radio too. The word, man. Hatefulness. Evil is coming. I, I keep talking, rambling on like a lost tumbleweed caught in a windstorm, making my way back to the same starting place all over again. That shit you gave me, I say to Mick. Did, did you take it too? It feels like nothing for a few minutes, followed by these seconds, these intense, crazy seconds of... I, I can't even describe it. I feel like I finally lost my mind. The line goes dead. And then static fizzles out from the phone, matching the noise from the television set. It turns to a clicking, and I know Mick isn't there. Maybe he never picked up in the first place. The clicking continues like a giant mantis luring me into a trap. A scream explodes from my throat when the clicking turns into a kind of SOS whisper. Cut out your tongue. It whispers. fall to my knees and I pray to the God I haven't prayed to since grandma made us, but I pray and I swear on my grandma's grave to be a better man if this all just stops. Please make it stop. It has to be more than just a drug now. This is more. This is real. Something horrifically tangible playing with my mind. Aliens, demons, whatever it is, just make it go away. I twitch my nose like Samantha, but the world remains the same. I ask God if he's listening, but only the man reporting from the TV station answers. We are broadcasting to our immediate area. We received this emergency notification nearly ten minutes ago. Ten minutes? Shit! I, I feel like I've been living in this twilight zone for hours, days! Another silent commercial fizzles on the TV screen, casting away the EBS page, and I thought the whole purpose of the emergency broadcast system was to make sure interruptions didn't happen. But what did I really know anymore? The commercial is an older black and white one I haven't seen in years. I blink slowly at the screen to make sure it's real. It's an old 60s commercial for ivory soap with a beautiful woman and two little girls gracefully dabbing their perfect complexions. I remember it vividly because my ma used to laugh at the ad when we watched it together during my visits. 
She'd shake her head and lament about how no one washes their face like that in those carefully measured dabs with smiling faces and not a hair out of place on their heads. I look again, closer this time, at the bars of soap, and instead of saying ivory on the ad, they say HATE in all capital letters. The anger, the hatefulness screaming up at me and I can't take it anymore. I turn off the television and back away from the set and crushed glass table into the kitchen. I hide behind the small counter and keep the screen out of view. Five seconds after burying my face in my hands, I hear the familiar beep, that terrible beeping that tells me the TV must be back on because now it is calling out emergency broadcast system again and again, four times before it fades back into static. Someone else must be here. Yes, someone here is fucking with me. They turned my TV back on and they messed with the phone with my head. I don't look up. But my hand searches above my head for the drawer where the sharpest object I own is. The big butcher's knife is clean, shiny, sharp as hell, not rusted or broken like so many of the other things I have accumulated into this place. When Aunt Carol hauled Grandma's now-possessed TV into my living room, she brought what I can only describe as a junk drawer full of other knickknacks for me, too. Most of it was trash, but the knife was brand new. Something from an ex that she'd never used. It was the newest thing I have ever owned. I take care of that knife, sharpen it, clean it, dry it thoroughly to avoid rust. It's been perfect for slicing any piece of meat or, or cheese, any vegetable. My hand finally wrenches the drawer open with a quiet squeak and I stab my finger before pulling it out by the handle but the small jewel of blood on my index finger is worth it. I remember the knife's ease when carving fat off steak, chopping carrots like butter, and slicing through that asshole's finger a few weeks ago. Mick didn't often crash here, but every once in a long while he would go wrong and he needed to lay low. Then a couple of weeks ago he brings a strung-out guy on speed into my apartment like it's no big deal. The guy was cracked out, angry, and fighting with Mick. I'm not a confrontational person, but after being in the same house as a war-corrupted soldier gone mad from my childhood, I learned to hold my own. That asshole tossed Mick around until one of my favorite paintings received a boot through the canvas, tearing my art to shreds. I cherished that painting, one of my first imitations of Shannon's flower arrangements, and that clown ruined it. He came after me in my own home, and I was already chopping celery, so I grabbed his wrist, threw him half over the kitchen counter, and sliced the tip of his pinky off. He howled and ran out of my door so fast that blood sprayed the walls. I sent Mick after him, told him not to stay here again. I thought the new good he'd left me today may have been kind of, of a peace offering, but now... I think I'm being punished. I clutch the knife and realize there are still bloodstains on my carpet from the stranger. They'll be there long after I leave here, too. I just hope that that's not tonight. And that it's not leaving the whole planet because I don't want to die. Not yet. The static whispers again. 
It'd be easy, wouldn't it? With this knife? I hold the gleaming tool up and examine my ragged reflection in its distorted image. I never liked hurting anyone or anything, but when you mess with my art, the thing that keeps me alive in more ways than one, then we have a problem. Maybe that was the whole idea, the only way to stop hatefulness. Cut out your tongue, and it ends. Cut out your tongue, and who are you going to talk to? For the rest of your days, who are you going to badmouth or curse at? But why did the whispers want me to cut my tongue out? I was good. I, I, I didn't spread the hatefulness. Please continue listening to your area's broadcast message. I jump out of my skin when the broadcaster's voice shatters my thoughts. He sends me scrambling away from my hiding place and back into the living room. No one else is around. No one here but me. I listen to the static and wait and wonder and desperately hope for a message, just saying what this all is, for some miraculous news to boom out of the speakers and tell me hatefulness is cured. It no, it lives no longer. And we all get to keep our tongues. Unless this is all much worse than they're telling us. The government hiding secrets, it... It happens all the time. Paranoia, a frantic kind of fear that a bomb will drop from the sky and detonate us all into oblivion freezes me in place. The drug has to have worn off by now, but the unsettling feeling of this isn't right haunts my body as if I've swallowed ghosts. The fear and the waiting, waiting, waiting for something more to happen. I should paint while I wait finish the vision I've constructed of Shannon's glowing voice, trapped in a glass mason jar surrounded by twinkling fireflies and blooming dandelions in a field of green wonder. If they find me dead from bombs, from aliens, from whatever the whisper demand, let them find my last gift for Shannon, too. New inspiration bleeds into my brain. I, I set down the brushes and rummage through the dish near the front door where I keep the keys and change. Shannon left a spare key here for the shop in case something ever happens and I need to hide there or check on things since I live right below the store. I could pluck the petals and seal them on the painting, or take whole flowers and have them bursting from the field. A picture so spectacular that she'll never look at Suitman again. I have the decency to throw on a robe in case I'm spotted, but if the world is ending, then who really cares? If you're wandering abandoned streets naked. Darkness greets me when I enter the flower store. I didn't bother with shoes and now my bare feet slap against the wooden floors. Glass that hasn't fallen away yet from my soles is so deeply embedded in my flesh that I barely even feel its uneven texture as I walk. The pain has not come. Just the blood. Crimson footprints stain the floor as I walk and I make a mental note to take care of that before morning. Working quickly, I steal a few cold daisies from the fridge and then trek back the way I came. From somewhere, in the dimness, static clicks and fizzles as if my television has followed me up the stairs. In a panic, I run through the store and toward the door, knocking over carefully arranged displays as I go. In the morning, I whisper, I'll fix it in the morning. And suddenly, morning has become a new goal, a challenge I must survive. 
and make it to. If I see the dawn of a new day, I'll know I'm alive. I made it. The static follows me even after I lock the door and bolt back downstairs. Every click and hiss is the same whisper telling me over and over to cut out my tongue. The mantra of it cements itself inside my head. A demand I can no longer escape because the voice is not only surrounding me but inside me. The spiders who live there flee their web and join the chant. Just a little bit. I'll only cut a little and the voice will stop. The static will end. I set the stolen flowers down on the counter beside the almost finished painting. The butcher knife gleams and I gently, lovingly pick up the blade in my shaking hands. I take a deep breath and try to chase away the panic. What good did panic ever do for a person? It pollutes you, that's all. I will end the hatefulness with peace. The knife is cold against my tongue. I hesitate, but the static won't stop. It's poured into my mind like freezing water, and I am desperate to end its chill. Click, hiss, click. I press the sharp edge down, and I'm surprised. There's a little pain here since I don't feel cuts on my body from the glass. The static fizzles like a frying egg. It murmurs inside my head. Hatefulness. Cut it out. Hatefulness. End it. I press down harder, and I can feel a surge of blood from the middle of my tongue. The TV set starts to smoke, and the broadcaster repeats over and over... A test, a test, a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is a test of. His voice fades back to the buzzing static, and I scream as I press down all the way now. A burst of angry energy overtakes me until I slice through, and I remember my hatefulness, my glee at watching my father burn, my utter contempt that he started the fire that killed him, because I would have done it. I wanted to for so long, but something out there helped me along the way. Grandma wanted us to pray for Dan's soul, but in my head all those years I just thanked God or the devil or whatever higher power out there for letting that man end in flames. Copper floods my mouth and the blood gushes from behind my lips as a soft thump sounds on the counter. The pink chunk of my tongue, now stained scarlet, lulls up at me from the surface next to my paints. Gray spots fleck my vision as I stumble around, knock the flowers off the counter, and hear the broadcaster one last time. We have received a message stating that the code word sent by the Air Force in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, had put in the wrong tape. I repeat, the wrong tape. The emergency is nothing to worry about, folks. The broadcaster lets out a huge sigh as I trip on the shattered table and fall to my knees, my vision growing only darker. But I have removed my hatefulness. I have won. Who 
If you think this hasn't been something for us in broadcasting, boy, are you thinking wrong. He giggles before the static returns. <laughs> I try to laugh along with the man, but more blood surges from my mouth instead. The world can hope again, and I will hope again, too. Morning. Just have to make it to morning. I crawl back to the kitchen, hoping to find a rag to press against the stub in my mouth and stop the bleeding. And all I find are Shannon's stolen flowers on the floor. I stuff the flowers into my mouth and grin, revealing all my own gore and panic. And now, a row of daisies spotted in crimson. Maybe it's okay in the end. Maybe the only way to stop the hatefulness is for all of us to cut out our tongues. I am the first to make the sacrifice, a true artist. I am devoid of darkness, of hatefulness. I am a new kind of peace, bleeding out onto the floor in a basement apartment. An artist with a vision. A victim of a code word. From my dimming vision, I spy a glorious sight outside the small window by the door that just barely lets me see outside into the surrounding world. A small glow of light. The breaking dawn of morning. <laughs> I grin with my mouth full of flowers close my eyes to the encompassing darkness. Hello, kiddies! So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wicked library and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs>